Brothers and sisters, friends, you may have a seat. You may have noticed I am not a six-foot-tall Caucasian male. I am a respectable five-foot-seven-and-a-half Indian male, and I serve as one of the pastors here. Uh, My name is Chris Gomes, and I'm glad to be here with you on this chilly, chilly Sunday. Uh, Kids, you already know the drill, so I don't need to hold you up much longer. Blue Station, ages three to five, you are going to be following Deacon Chuck and Miss Paula. And uh, Gray Station, ages six to fifth grade, you're following Miss Nancy and Miss Cassidy and Mr. Johnny. And our kids this morning are going to be reflecting upon the truth that God is righteous. God is righteous. God's nature is sinless, and his actions are sinless. And friends, maybe this morning, this week, this month, a brief passage that you can reflect on, that the kids are reflecting on, is simply 2 Corinthians 5.21. We have been made righteous through God because God is righteous. So, helpful passage for you to consider You may have also noticed uh, that uh, in your loop this morning, if you came in, uh, that our sermon text was supposed to be Hebrews chapter 13. Um, I think the sports term is audible, is it? Okay, so sometimes life throws an audible. Uh, This morning we are not going to be in Hebrews chapter 13, we're actually going to be in 1 John. So we're going to, uh, my hope is that this is the first of many sermons through uh, the book of 1 John. We're going to take a brief pause through uh, the book of Hebrews, which we have so richly enjoyed. And we're going to take just a little bit of time, starting this morning, to look at the letter of First John. Sometimes life throws curveballs, and uh, you have to adjust on the fly. But what we know is you are to, uh, particularly for the elders and preachers, you are to be ready to preach in and out of season, and that the word is sufficient. Uh, during my time of preparation, uh, particularly this weekend, as I was reflecting on our passage this morning, I was reminded what I learned a long time ago, that the sufficiency of God's Word is greater than the creativity of God's Amen. man, the, the person speaking, the preacher. Right? Sufficiency is greater than creativity. And if you've been here with us long enough, you know I'm not all that creative. So, First John, we're going to be looking at four brief verses this morning. I'm going to uh, read to us uh, this brief passage. If you don't have a Bible, there are Black Pew Bibles there in front of you. Uh, you can also follow along on the screen behind us, behind me, in front of you. Uh, but the book of 1 John, the letter of 1 John, is found towards the very end of the Bible. Uh, it's a very short book. It's there all the way towards the end. So if you need to just flip over to the end and open the Bible using the back cover, easy way to get right to 1 John. It's going to be right before 2 John. So, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is the word of the Lord. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Friends, this brief little book is a stunning pastoral address to a group of churches that 
was struggling. Uh, There was a mass exodus of Christians who were departing from the faith. These men and women were leaving what they once held dear to strange, straying teachings. Now, if you uh, were told, maybe by a neighbor or a friend or a uh, co-worker or what have you, that they have a connection with the most powerful and the most prestigious and the most influential men or, uh, or women in our culture, and they could get you connected with them, what would you do? Say maybe they could get you backstage tickets to Taylor Swift's new concert. I don't know if we have any Swifties in here. Please don't confess that. Or maybe you uh, are told that Dwayne The Rock Johnson will be your friend. I would kill for that. What would you do if you were told that you could get special access and connection to the most powerful, the most influential, the greatest of all the people? You'd probably be tempted to buy whatever is being sold to you. In, in a very real and practical way, the churches that the Apostle John is writing to in First John were being sold a bill of goods that may or may not have led to what they thought. If you've never read the book of First John, you can take 15 minutes this afternoon to read through this brief letter. It is brief, it is quick, it's pastoral, and it is punchy. And if you are reading through this letter, uh, maybe for the first time, or you've read it several times, uh, just, to, uh, just to help all of us kind of level set to understand where we are in this book, I want to just provide a little bit of background and context to what we are reading and studying this morning. The structure and the style of this letter is both interesting and it poses some unique challenges. So unlike the Pauline letters, there's no typical greeting There's, uh, similar to the letter of Hebrews, the author does not identify himself explicitly. But when we consider the style of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and we compare that to the Gospel of John, which is the fourth book in the New Testament, there's sufficient evidence to suggest that the author of this brief letter is the Apostle John. Early church tradition says that the Apostle John left Jerusalem sometime in uh, 67 AD and he moved to the wildly secular and pagan city of Ephesus to continue his apostolic ministry. And the letter that he's written here was likely circulated to the churches in the surrounding regions across Asia Minor, which is now Turkey. And when you read this letter, it, in, in a very real way, it reads almost like a sermon. The early uh, post-apostolic figures like Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John, uh, and Irenaeus, they, they both cite 1 John in their writings as early as the 2nd century. So here's what we know from history. This letter was written a long time ago, and this letter was written very close to the time of the Apostle's ministry, the fact that the Apostle John himself wrote it. And this letter was also being used in the life of the early church to refute false teaching and to serve local churches. It's customary to understand, too, you might be asking, well, why was this particular letter written? It's customary to understand that 1 John was written as a response to the rise of an early or proto-form of a false teaching called Gnosticism. There's a silent G in front of that. 
This false teaching was influencing the churches in this area. And it's, what's interesting is it, it, the, the very word Gnosticism, it comes from this Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. Right? And so generally speaking, this group of people who held to this idea of Gnosticism, what they were teaching was that salvation can only be achieved through a special and hidden knowledge within yourself. Gnosis, special hidden knowledge. And while the heyday of Gnostic thought was the 2nd through 5th centuries, well after the New Testament letters have been written, it is very possible and very likely that 1 John was written to refute some of the heretical teachings taught by those who held to Gnosticism. Now, why do I bring all of that up? The very fact that this letter was written goes to show that the early church was being influenced by false teaching. We are no different. In fact, we are more likely, and uh, more likely than we would even like to admit, influenced by culture than we would even want to admit. Right? You can take any, any amount of time to think about how often we are influenced by the way of the world over the way of Scripture. Right? So it's, we're, we're, nothing's really changed except for the weather in about 2,000 years. Right? Now, you take 15 minutes this afternoon, you read through this letter. I mean, you, while you're waiting for your waitress to bring you lunch this, this afternoon, you can read through this brief letter. And what you'll see is the Apostle's letter speaks authoritatively about the truth of the incarnation of Jesus. The Apostle John reaffirms the core of Christianity and calls the churches in the surrounding regions to hold to sound doctrine and exhibit obedience and love that characterizes true Christians who have fellowship with God. Now, according to the ESV Study Bible Commentary, there's much that we might not know about what was happening during John's ministry in writing this letter. But what we do know from this letter is that John wrote to Christians who had witnessed an exodus from their ranks. Read chapter 2, verse 19. Those who departed from us were not truly of us, right? So he uh, is writing to Christians who had witnessed this exodus, people leaving the Orthodox faith, and he's urging readers to refine their theological understanding. He's urging them to sharpen their ethical rigor. And he's urging them to heighten their devotional intensity. What does that sound like? Basically, he's calling the churches to grow in faith, obedience, and love. And yet, the letter is not a list of to-dos and to-don'ts. Rather, it is a manifesto of done Jesus' words, John uh, chapter 19, verse 30, it is finished. John is reiterating what Jesus has said on the cross. It is finished. First John highlights what God the Father has done in sending Christ the Son, offering him up as a sacrifice for sins, and sending forth what we see in our passage this morning, the word of life that is causing this world's darkness to pass away and the true light of the coming age to shine. I've uh, simply titled our, uh, this sermon this morning, Fellowship Through the Word of Life. And in these brief four verses, the, the main idea that we're going to consider that we're pulling from the text is simply, true fellowship with God 
comes only through Jesus Christ, the word of life. I'm going to say that one more time for all of our note-taking friends. True fellowship with God comes only through Jesus Christ, the word of life. In this brief passage, we're going to see three truths to embrace. We're just going to unpack this passage one truth at a time. The first truth we'll consider in verses 1 and 2. The word of life existed eternally with the Father and was made manifest in Jesus. Look at verses 1 and 2. I'll just read this passage to us again. John wrote, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. Verse 2, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. Do you, do you see and sense in which there is this empirical sense in John's words? We have seen it, we have heard it, we have touched it, we have looked upon it. Believe us. This is empirical. This is true. I have found in my personal uh, uh, study one, one practice to be very helpful which is to paraphrase the passages that you're reading. Not to try to draw out a new interpretation, but simply just understanding it in my own words. And I found one uh, uh, commentator and theologian uh, who paraphrased this passage very helpfully this way. He said, When we set before you the gospel of Christ, the word of life, there are certain factors that must be stressed, not least of which is the fact that the eternal that which was from the beginning, that very life which was with the Father, has been historically manifested. And you may rely on our proclamation of this because we have heard him, we have seen him with our own eyes, we beheld him, and our hands even grasped him. Storms goes on to say, as you know, some say that the body of Jesus was not real flesh that it only seemed to be so. It is also their teaching that the divine Lagos, or Christ, who was with the Father from eternity past, is distinct from the man Jesus upon whom he descended at the baptism and from whom he departed from before the crucifixion. Now, just to level set again, this group of people were suggesting that the man Jesus was not truly truly God and truly man, two natures in one person. They were suggesting that this ethereal spirit of Christ descended upon this man who lived this life of ministry, and then before the crucifixion, this ethereal spirit then departed from the man. Right? And so the Gnostics and the Docetists were denying the true efficacy and the nature of Jesus' atonement. How so? Because they were denying the divine and human natures of Jesus the Christ. So this might sound like some heady theological jargon, but the reason why I'm stressing this is if we get Jesus Christ wrong, we get Christianity wrong. And if we get Christianity wrong, there is no right. Now, Storms goes on. He, he continues his paraphrasing. 
But we stand opposed to such ideas. His body was not a phantasm. It was real. We heard him speak, but even more than that, we saw him with our eyes, and we beheld him, and even laid our hands upon his flesh. Moreover, this man, Jesus, was the Christ. They are one and the same person. He who was with the Father was historically manifested as the God-man, Jesus Christ. So friends, if you've not uh, practiced this idea of paraphrasing passages, it is personally very helpful. But John, this is not the very first time that we see that John talks about the word being made manifest. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John goes on to say in the beginning of his gospel, in chapter 1, verses 14 to 18, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Friends, do you notice here how the Apostle John's words absolutely refutes this idea that you can come to know God through a special hidden knowledge through the divine light that is within you. Friends, spend any amount of time with self-reflection and you are going to see that there is no divine light within you. There is just sin. There is just sin. Apart from God, our hearts are against God. We hate everything God stands for. We find that which is ugly to be beautiful. We find that which is hideous and rebellious towards God to be precious. We look at what the Lord condemns and say, that's my treasure. And we herald it to be so. Friends, do not trust within yourself any sort of goodness that you think you can manufacture. Trust in what the scriptures illuminate. That apart from God, there is no good within us. Only in God can we understand what divine light truly is. And that light is the Son of God. Jesus, the Word, existed eternally with no beginning and no end with God the Father. So if there are today, maybe in your workplace or maybe in your neighborhoods or maybe people who are knocking on your door wanting you, wanting you to join their church, telling you, oh yeah, we believe in Jesus, but we don't really think that he was God, uh-uh. I'm not suggesting shut the door in their face, but I am suggesting, why don't you go ahead and invite them in, brew them a cup of coffee, and explain to them through the scriptures why Jesus truly is both God and man. And if they want to say the scriptures don't teach that, they are not of you. Jesus the Word existed eternally with no beginning and no end with God the Father. And when the Bible says that the Word was made manifest, this sounds like, you know, kind of churchy lingo. All this means is that the eternal Son of God took upon himself in addition to his fully divine nature, a human nature, yet without sin. The Bible does not teach that Jesus was 50-50, that he was half God, half man. No. The Bible clearly teaches, explicitly, 
Jesus was 100% God, 100% man. And this human nature that he has taken upon himself is not a human nature that he is going to take off. He is now forevermore still fully God and yet fully man, yet without sin. This is exactly what Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 2. If you look at verses 6 through 8, Paul said, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, Again, if we get Christ wrong, we get Christianity wrong. We must understand who Jesus is. And we are not the only church in only this period of time that has needed to understand Christ rightly. Over the many centuries, important creeds and confessions and statements have been written by churches and groups of churches and various councils to clarify an orthodox understanding of Christianity. You can look at our own church's statement of faith. And maybe you're new to our church and you're trying to understand what Hagerstown Church is all about. Might I encourage you to look at our statement of faith. And our statement of faith will clearly exposit and express to you what we believe the scriptures teach about Christianity. But you can read some of the older confessions. My personal favorite is the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith written in 1833. You might want to go a little bit older and read the 1689 because that's a lot bigger and fancier. Go for it. You might want to go even older and read the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. All of these statements, creeds, and confessions are helpful tools to clarify and to draw clear lines. And I think one of the most important statements on Christianity was written just a few years ago. It's the Ligonier Statement on Christology. Christology just simply means the study of Christ and uh, Ligonier Ministries has put out a wonderfully helpful statement because when you look at the general American understanding of who Jesus is, it is very far from what the scriptures teach. Spend some time and, and reflect on this brief statement, which says, We confess the mystery and wonder of God made flesh and rejoice in our great salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. With the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Son created all things, sustains all things, and makes all things new. Truly God, he became truly man, two natures in one person. He was born of the Virgin Mary and lived among us. Crucified, dead, and buried, he rose on the third day, ascended to heaven, and will come again in glory and judgment. For us, he kept the law, atoned for sin, and satisfied God's wrath. He took our filthy rags and gave us his righteous robe. He is our prophet, priest, and king, building his church, interceding for us, and reigning over all things. Jesus Christ is Lord, and we praise his holy name forever. Amen. That is Jesus, dear friends. And this Jesus the Savior of the world, the Lord of the universe, the one in the three with the Father and the Spirit, he is no boring character. 
He sustains all things. He has created all things. He has redeemed sinners to himself. He has absorbed the wrath of the Father. He continues to intercede for us and he is building his church and he reigns over all things. He is Lord and Savior even present today. He is ruling over the universe, upholding the universe by the word of his power. Friends, think of him for more than a second and you will find that he will not bore you. In Oxford, England, there is a monument to the Reformation martyrs, and there's an inscription on this monument that says, yielded their bodies to be burned, bearing witness to the sacred truths which they had affirmed and maintained against the errors of the Church of Rome, and rejoicing that to them it was given not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. All right, did you catch the key verbs in this brief inscription? Affirmed and maintained. Affirmed and maintained true and biblically faithful doctrine. Church, will you again affirm and maintain the true and biblically faithful doctrine and proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ? The word of life who existed eternally with the Father and was made manifest. That's just our first truth to embrace from this brief passage. There are a few more. We'll move on to our second one now. In verse 3, That which we have seen and heard we also proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Friends, the second truth to embrace from this passage is that the Christian proclamation is about a person, not religious performance. The apostle is clear. Look, we have seen Jesus, we have heard Jesus, and it is Jesus whom we proclaim to you. There's nobody else that we're proclaiming. There's no other way to have fellowship with God. It is only through Jesus that you may have fellowship with us. And the apostle John is saying, believe us. Our fellowship truly is with the Father and the Son. And this F word, fellowship, in our modern Christian vernacular, it's used so loosely. It's, it's on, on church signs and building signs, and, and we use fellowship synonymously with friendship. And, and, and as, as common as it is, it's almost as if the potency of the term it, it, it just gets, uh, has just gotten kind of diluted. Right? But what's interesting about the letter of 1 John is when, when the Apostle John uses the Greek term koinonia, meaning fellowship, this is not characteristic for John to use. It, rather, scholars believe that the Apostle John is using a term that his opponents were using. See, his opponents were leading this exodus out of the Christian faith, saying, come with us, and then you can have true fellowship with God. You can have fellowship with us, and you can have fellowship with God, and we will help you discover this special hidden knowledge within yourself so that you can see the divine light in you and then find salvation with God. But that's what the opponents were saying. The apostle John is saying, listen, if you want true koinonia, if you want true fellowship with God, that is not the way. To have true fellowship with God is to hear and believe what we are proclaiming to you about the word of life, not the divine light that they claim is within you. Friends, do you see the difference the Apostle Paul is using a term that his opponents are using in a true and better way. 
If you want to have fellowship with God, believe the word of life. One commentator said that Christian fellowship is not possible other than on the basis of common belief in Christ Jesus. Fellowship with each other is possible only if we have fellowship with the Father and the Son. Now, we can be friends if you don't believe in Jesus as the Son of God, as the, uh, the, the one who has made propitiation for the world. Uh, we, we, can, we can still be friends, we can still agree on many things, we can disagree on many things, but we won't have true fellowship. So there, we must understand the difference between the two. So my unbelieving friends and coworkers, I love them. They're great to work with. I love talking with them. I love hanging out with them. But we don't have fellowship because we do not have agreement and a common belief in Christ Jesus. As uh, one commentator said, the Apostle John assumes that intimate fellowship in the Christian community is only possible when there is consensus about the identity and presence of Jesus. Our fellowship as Christians is not some passing association of people who share common sympathies for a cause. Nor is it an academy where intellectual consensus about God is discovered. No. To have true fellowship with one another, we must have a common understanding and experience of Jesus Theologian Sam Storm said, Christian fellowship is a spiritual partnership grounded in a common experience of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If we share together a common experience of the person and work of Jesus Christ, we then have true fellowship. And we may disagree on secondary issues and tertiary issues and what sports teams we want to root for or which candidate we want to vote for. But if we believe in Jesus Christ together as exposited in the scriptures and as revealed through the scriptures, as revealed in the gospel, then we may have true fellowship. John is not prescribing here a way to live. He is not prescribing for us a plan to become increasingly more spiritually mature. He is proclaiming a Savior. John is proclaiming a Savior. The Christian proclamation is about a person. You might be somebody who is visiting with us today. Maybe your Christian friend brought you uh, and invited you to, to join us. And you might have heard about what Christians believe and what Christians think. Maybe you've heard of Christians you know, in national media or, or, or what have you. Maybe you've, you're somebody who's gone to church all your life and the whole Christian living, Christian life, you know, soli deo gloria stuff doesn't really matter to you. You, you don't really care about that. My hope is that in our time together this morning, you will gain a clearer understanding of what the gospel is. And that, that's not only my hope for those who profess faith in Christ and, and those who don't profess faith in Christ. Christians, we need to understand the gospel just as clearly as those who do not profess faith in Jesus Christ. Do you know the gospel? Can you articulate the gospel? If you had three minutes, let's be more gracious, if you had 10 minutes to share the gospel with your unbelieving friend. Let's just set up a scenario. Your unbelieving friend comes to you and asks you, Brett, what is the gospel? You talk about this all the time and I just don't understand what it is. Can you take 10 minutes to clearly articulate what the gospel message is? 
I was asked that question a long, long, long time ago, and I picked up a copy of Mark Dever's The Gospel and Personal Evangelism, which is available for sale in the book cart right through this door, and that book changed my life. If you need help to articulate what the gospel is to yourself, to your children, to your unbelieving family members, to your coworkers and your neighbors, let me explain to you how I understand and what many Orthodox Christians understand what the good news is. The gospel simply means good news. It's, it's, it's good news. It's good news that the one and only God who is holy created all things out of nothing, and that includes you and me, regardless of race, tribe, color, or tongue. And he has made us in his image to know him, to love him, to relate with him, to understand him, to enjoy him, to treasure him. But we have sinned. We have rebelled against God. God who is holy and just and perfect and who wants to give you life. We have said no. We've rebelled against him. We are now in enmity with him. We hate him. Therefore, we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. But in his great love, God became a man in Jesus. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross as our substitute. The death that you and I deserve to die for our sin against a perfect, eternal, holy God. Jesus died as our substitute to atone for our sin. He took upon himself the punishment of the sins you and I deserve. And for all those who would ever turn and trust in him, he rose again from the dead, showing that God accepted Christ's sacrifice and that God's wrath against us had been exhausted. He now calls us to repent of our sins and to trust in Christ alone for our forgiveness. You don't need to go searching for divine light. You don't need to go searching for goodness in yourself. There is no goodness in us. But there is good news for you, dear friend. There is good news in Jesus Christ who died for our sins, who has now brought about for us forgiveness, who has made atonement possible. And if we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus, we are born again into a new life, an eternal life of friendship and fellowship with God. And friends, if that is not good news, I don't know what good news is. Church, we do not have a plan. We simply have a person. And his name is Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the Word of life. There's one more truth that I think we ought to uh, consider from our passage this morning, and that's in verse 4. John concludes the opening of this letter with these words. He says, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Our third truth to embrace. The apostle writes these things to complete his joy. I told y'all at the beginning, I'm not very creative. I literally just, re, re, I just paraphrased that one verse into this third point. But the apostle writes these things to complete his joy. So what he's saying is, look, all the things that I've just written and all the things I'm about to write, is, it's, it's for my joy to be made complete. Now, but a cursory reading of this verse might sound strange. It might even sound self-serving, right? He is writing all these things for himself, but... If the leaders of these churches in Asia Minor were seeing this mass exodus of people departing from the faith, why would John be concerned with his own joy? That sounds a little problematic. Right? But don't just settle for a cursory reading. You should settle for a careful reading. 
A careful reading of this letter will show that the Apostle John was not selfishly concerned with his own fleshly gain. He was not writing this letter to lord his authority over all these churches, to say, look at me and make me feel really good about my position. That's not what he was doing. What's clear from this letter is that his joy was not self-centered. It was Christ-centered. It was church-centered. The apostle's joy was integrally linked to these churches that he's writing to that they would hold on to sound doctrine and trust in Christ alone. His joy would be made complete knowing that these Christians were indeed walking in the truth and holding fast to Christ. You know, uh, most Christian parents would say that the greatest joy and the greatest desire that they have would be that their children would come to know the Lord. Right? There are a lot of other joys that we might have, you know, like they graduate from school and get a decent job and they're respectable, productive citizens of the country and you know, do good to other people and all these things. You know. But the greatest joy that we might have is that our kids would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And until they do, this joy is not complete yet. It, it's still lacking a little bit. We still have joy in the Lord and joy in one another and, and, and situational joy and all these things. But this one thing that we desire more than anything, until we get that, it won't be complete. That is what the Apostle John has in mind. He looks at this church as little children. In fact, in his later letters, he will call them little children. In fact, he does that in this letter itself. He's got a paternal apostolic, pastoral heart and care for these people to walk in the truth of Jesus Christ, to not settle for a cheap substitute, to not settle for strange and false teaching influencing them, but to look to Jesus alone. Then his joy would be made complete. But friends, John is not the only figure who had a concern with his own joy. Christian parents who hope that their children will walk with the Lord are not the only people who have a concern for their own joy. Have you considered the concern Jesus had for his own joy? The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Y'all catch that? For the joy that was set before him, beaten, bruised, bloody, naked on a cross, being jeered at, abandoned by all of his closest friends, no one there beside him, not even a clean cup of water to drink, but sour wine, Jesus had joy. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 tells us, at least in part, that Jesus died because the joy of saving you was greater than the shame of the cross. Friends, Jesus had joy in mind when he endured the cross. What kind of joy are we talking about here? It was the joy of restored fellowship and intimacy with the Father. 
Jesus spoke in John 17 of how his father would restore him the glory that he had in the fellowship of the Trinity before the foundation of the world. That's the kind of joy that we're we're talking about. It was the joy of being seated at the right hand of the throne of God, as stated at the close of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. That's the kind of joy that Jesus had in mind. It was the joy of leading many sons and daughters to glory, as Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 reminds us, and spending eternity in fellowship with those sinners whose lives he was able to redeem and save by his sufferings. That's the kind of joy Jesus had in mind when he endured the cross, despising the shame. In other words, what sustained the perfect God-man, Jesus the Christ, in the garden And through the flogging he endured by the Roman soldiers and being nailed to a cross was the hope of joy beyond the cross. Joy in relationship with the Father and joy in eternal fellowship with you and me. That's the kind of joy Jesus had to endure the cross, despising the shame. Friends, that's just the first four verses. You keep spending a little bit more time and you're just going to be mining gold and deep treasure that will prepare you not only for your deathbed, but will sustain you even tomorrow. But what are the practical implications in these first four verses? You'll notice that the Apostle John has not explicitly given any commands, nor have I given you any commands here. There are no commands present. We're not explicitly told to do something or to not do something. But look closer. Reflect a little bit longer. Meditate on these verses and you'll notice that the implicit thing to do is to simply embrace the message of Christianity in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the word of life. Embrace the word of life and you will have true friendship and fellowship with God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the friendship and fellowship that we have with you in Jesus. God, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. Father, we thank you that that which was from the beginning is our life now. And when our life appears in glory, there we will appear with him also, as Paul reminds us in Colossians chapter 3. Father, we ask that you would help us and lead us and strengthen us and lift our eyes upwards to look to Jesus. And if he is not our greatest joy, Lord, would you stir our affections to see just how great of a treasure he is? Would you help us, Lord, to delight in Christ, the word of life? Would you help us to see that we do not have to uh, grope our way to find life elsewhere? But life has been made manifest in Christ the Son for us, who endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God, before whom we will spend all of eternity praising and worshiping and enjoying together. And so, God, we ask as we conclude our time now that you would lead us to embrace the word of life, to have true friendship and fellowship with you by faith in Christ. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand, church, and sing, Come Thou Long Expect?